From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're changing things up a bit with a conversation between Harvard's David Sinclair and our host, Matthew LaPlante. They've just released a new book together, Lifespan, that makes the case that human aging as we know it could soon be a thing of the past. It's the journalist and the geneticist coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Alyssa Roberts. What if aging wasn't inevitable? What if being 90 felt pretty much the same as being 40, just with a few extra decades of life experience? And what if the science that gets us to that point in human history wasn't the subject of speculative fiction? What if it was real? David Sinclair believes all of this and more may come to pass in many of our lifetimes. And before you pass this off as crazy talk, you should know this. Sinclair is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and one of the most cited biological researchers in the world. He's also the author of a new book called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, which he wrote with our host, Matthew LaPlante. That means we get a little privileged access to David, and it also means that, as good journalists, we need to responsibly offer this disclosure. Matthew was compensated for his work on this book. He gains no further compensation based on sales, but he and David do plan to continue working together in the future. David has been understandably pretty busy promoting the new book, so we reached him in New York as he was driving between interviews. With that and no further ado, today on Undisciplined, we're bringing together a journalist and a geneticist for a conversation about aging, science, and how to communicate big ideas to a world that might not be ready. Hey, David. Hey, Matt. We're recording this conversation two days after the release of your book, and You've been really, really busy. What have the last 48 hours been like for you? Uh, well, I've never released a book before. I've, I've put out scientific publications, but this is really different because as a, the book, I, I've poured my heart, my soul into it. And to have that many people interested in it and give positive feedback about it, it it's been a really new experience for me, uh, one that I'm just so grateful to have experienced in the last uh, couple of days. What's the thing that you're hearing from people seem that people seem the most compelled by? Well, first of all, people are happy just to have it in their hands. Funnily enough, that it seems like it's a topic that people have been waiting for an expert to write in a, an accessible way, and and this is it. We, we've done it. But those who have read it. One person wrote to me within hours of it coming out, and they said, "David." Uh, I bought the audio book, and I haven't been able to stop listening to it. And I just finished it, and I wanted to let you know that I couldn't put it down. And that, that was really exciting to hear that it's a page-turner. But also, when people go away, they're telling me that after they've read it, they, they look at their own lives differently. And that's what I was hoping to achieve. I, I'm so jealous of this, because what people tell me about my book uh, which came out back in April, is that they keep putting it down. And and I know they're, they're telling me this. <laughs> I, I know they don't mean it offensively, but they're like, no, I, like, I read a little bit, and then I want to talk to my friends about it, and I read a little bit. And I think that's a nice compliment, but what, I, you know, what an author really wants to hear is I couldn't put it down. But that's what I'm seeing on social media from a lot of people, like on, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, you know, the reviews uh, that are coming in, like on Amazon and other side, or people are saying... They're just devouring the whole thing. And it's a big, it's like 400 pages, right? Uh, well, it, listeners shouldn't panic. It, it's about 300. And the, the last 100 are 
uh, references so that they know that everything that is in the book is fact, and they can check it themselves and click on those if they have the, the electronic version. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a dense book, um, and I think many people will realize, as, as I have, that you can read the book many times, and you, you discover new stuff every time you read it. The thing that really distinguishes this book from other works about aging is that it includes this new theory on aging, which you've called the information theory on aging. Can you explain the theory and describe why it's different than the prevailing ideas about why we age? Aging is one of the, the, the more complicated things uh, in the world, um, and it, it, it's not that easy to come up with a and a theory that explains everything, but I think I think we've come close. So it's the best thing that's come to until now. And what's happened is, over the last ten years, scientists like me have agreed that there are about eight or nine hallmarks of aging. I think many people will have heard of things like telomere shortening, the ends of chromosomes, uh, loss of energy, mitochondrial dysfunction. We call that proteins are misfolded. We call those the hallmarks of aging. But what scientists hadn't figured out and I think we may have figured it out now, is what causes all those things to happen, and is there a single cause? And what I think is going on is that cells lose their ability to read their genetic information over time. And more excitingly, I think we may have a chance of resetting the cells so it can read that genetic information and be young again. How do cells normally read genetic information? I mean, they, they like put on their little pair of glasses and sit there in their chair in a comfy light with a cup of cocoa? I mean, like, how does that, how does that work? So when I was a PhD student, that's how I actually used to do it. Um, <laughs> we would read the DNA, literally. Now computers do it. Uh, but the cell, it actually, so the DNA is, is a string of chemicals uh, with four different chemical letters, A, C, T, G. And there are enzymes, proteins that grab onto that string and thread it through. And as it's threading through, they can actually see those letters go by, and that tells the cell which amino acids to stick together to make other proteins. Uh, and so that's what we call reading a gene. And what gets in the way of that as we age? Uh, well, when a gene is switched on, uh, say a, a nerve cell needs to have a nerve cell set of genes switched on, and that happens when we're very young. What happens is those parts of the string are looped out in in these accessible regions, these big loops of DNA, and now the cell can attach those reading enzymes. If, if it's a liver gene, of course, a, a nerve cell doesn't want to be a liver, so when we're very young, when we're embryos, those genes for being a liver get switched off in the nerve cell. And the way they switch them off, in part, is to bundle up the string into tight little balls uh, so that they cannot be reached by those reading enzymes. But over time, as we get older, what we've discovered is those big loops with genes that are on and loops that are tightly bundled for genes that are off, that'll get messed up. And that's the information that we lose, the ability to read the right genes at the right time. And cells lose their identity and don't function very well. And ultimately, they either die, they kill themselves, or they senesce, which means they turn into these horrible zombie cells that sit in our bodies and cause havoc around uh, the entire body and make other cells get old as well. The really cool things that are happening in your lab right now are, you think, perhaps reversing that process or, or mediating that process. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, well, those, those loops that get messed up as the cells get older... Uh, we really had no idea until about a year ago, which 
uh, as you know, Matt, uh, we, we discovered in my lab, and, and that discovery is in the book, so people will, will learn how we discovered it, what it felt like to make a discovery. That was a, a major discovery in that we figured out that those loops could be reset to the way they should be when we're young. And so genes that have come on in nerve cells to make them defective and people are losing their memory, what we think is we've got a set of reprogramming factors, a set of, in this case, three genes that when we put them back into old cells, it restores that, that looping structure to the way it should be. And as a result, the cells act as though they're young again. And even more than that, they're literally young again. The DNA clock of aging, which we've recently discovered, gets reset. And now that cell, if you looked at it, if I gave it to a friend of mine and read its DNA, he would say, yep, that's a young cell. And I would say, no, it's a reprogrammed cell. It was really cool for me to be able to watch your reaction in real time to this because, you know, like we met each other about two years ago. And at that time, you had a, a pretty long and distinguished scientific career already. And so all of the discoveries that you had already made or you had already been part of were things that I would have to hear from you or have to hear from the people who'd worked with you at the time and kind of recreate. But this thing you're talking about now, this cellular reprogramming discovery, I got to watch. And one of the things I saw, David, was that you transformed. I mean, like you were already a really optimistic person about the future of aging research and the things that we might be able to do to mitigate some of the consequences of aging. But it was almost like overnight you turned into this even more optimistic person. Did you feel that happening in yourself as well at the time? Definitely, 100%. Now, I, I'm an optimistic person, but the technology that we had up until a year ago was palliative care, meaning that we could slow aging down we could reverse a few little aspects of it, such as uh, improving endurance and blood flow. But we didn't know if we could truly reset the age of our bodies. And that's what that discovery said is possible. And, and that I didn't even realize was going to be ever biologically possible. But there it was, the first evidence that we could truly rewind back our biological clock. I think a lot of people, they hear this and they get a little panicked and, you know, like, what, they, they, well, why, why would we fight against aging? It's a natural process. It's something we do. What, what do you tell people when they say, you know, like, how, how dare you? Which is not, I mean, like, I'm not, being, I'm not being histrionic here. Like, people actually say the words, how dare you? <laughs> what, do you what do you say in response to that? Everything we humans do is natural, whether it's inventing uh, fire, the use of fire, or making stone tools. This is all natural. This is what we do. And if you look around your environment, environment right now, what is natural? We've got clothes in our bodies. We're in buildings. This, this is what we do. And we've always fought against uh, medical issues as well. We, we treat cancer. We naturally treat infections. And aging is also something that causes us to have a lack of quality of life, and be sick. And that's also something that I think we naturally are inclined and should push towards uh, combating. When we started working together, actually, the, before we started working together, I, like, I admit I was pretty skeptical. Uh, even given your credentials, I was determined not to drink any of the Kool-Aid. One of the things that I learned as we went along in the process of researching and writing this book together is that you're not a lone wolf in this field. There are a lot of people working 
in this space. And more and more every day, it seems like labs are standing up all over the world. And all of these people, they're working on attacking aging from a bunch of different angles. And so even if, you know, like Marvel's Thanos was to arrive and snap his fingers and you and everybody else in the Sinclair lab at Harvard just disappeared just like that. The research, <laughs> the, the research momentum on this is really, it's, it's quite staggering. Well, it is. And, and in the book, Lifespan, the idea is not to tell just my story. It's to give readers a front row seat on all of this new technology that's coming online, or what people can do in their lives now and what's just around the corner. And there are literally hundreds of labs now working on this problem and dozens of companies that have investment to make medicines of the future that won't just stop one disease, which won't lengthen our lifespan very much, maybe two years if we cure cancer, but actually extend lifespan far beyond that by keeping all of the major diseases at bay. And you're right. I don't need to, to be around for that to happen. It is going to happen anyway. Outside of the stuff that is happening in your lab, what is happening elsewhere that just makes you go, oh my gosh, this is amazing? Uh, well, there are some drugs that are called senolytics. Uh, what senolytics means is the drugs that kill those zombie cells, which we refer to as senescent cells. And these accumulate over time in our tissues and wreak havoc. And these drugs we think if we can clear those cells away, that would be another way of rejuvenating our body and, and going back in time. And that is really exciting because there are already human studies that have shown some promise. You know, one of the things I think um, maybe people might not know about you if they're just being introduced to you today is that your relationship with aging research started with yeast. Um, you were a, I don't know if I want to use the word lowly, but I'm, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. You were a lowly yeast researcher. Um, and that's where you first got introduced, I think, right, to this idea that we maybe age in different ways than we thought before. Can you talk about like the early part of your career and what set you off on this path? Uh, yeah, so my, my accent's Australian, uh, but I came to MIT in Boston in the 1990s to work with Professor Leonard Garenti, who had just started a project to try and understand why aren't yeast cells immortal. Yeast cells, the, the organism we use to make beer, the organism we use to make bread. And I figured that if we can't figure out why yeast get old, we'll have no chance of figuring it out for humans. And so I set about to understand why do yeast cells age. And it was there that uh, the professor and I made those remarkable first discoveries that, yes, you can understand why organisms grow old. We've, that took about a year to figure out. But even better than that, we figured out how to slow it down and the genes that control that process. And these are genes that are in our bodies as well, genes that get activated when we exercise or are hungry. And that's why dieting and exercise, we believe, is good for us. And what we find in yeast, we find in yeast, right? And what we find in roundworms, we find in roundworms and, and, and mice, and et cetera. But the really exciting thing happens when you start seeing the same effect across a bunch of different model organisms. That's, that's really what gives us confidence that these effects may be also seen in humans. Well, that's really true. So yeast don't get cancer, they don't get Alzheimer's, but they do get aging. And aging 
what's great about it is that if we're right about it, that, that there's this universal cause of aging and there are these universal genes that control it. And that means that if we can extend the lifespan of yeast and worms and flies and mice, which my field has done, then we're very close to mice compared to a yeast cell. We're at the last 1% of, uh, of difference, which is very different than trying to, de- trying to develop a cancer drug, which is a very complex set of diseases that you cannot model in these other little organisms. So I think that actually treating aging is going to be far simpler than treating cancer. That's just a staggering assertion. I think a lot of people would hear that and go, like, that, that's crazy. How can that be? Because aging is such a, such a fundamental thing. But, but having seen the work now, and, and again, like I came into this very skeptical, um, you say that now and I hear you say that now and I, I don't even blink. I just say, like, I, I think he's right. I think that that's the right analogy to make. But if that's true, like the implications of what we're talking about here are pretty, they're, they're pretty staggering, right? I mean, that, that's what the last section of the book is about. If, if humans begin to start living significantly longer and healthier lives, if we still feel young at 70 and 80 and 90, what does that mean for the way we work and for the way we build families, for the way we invest in our world? How do you even conceptualize a world 50 or 100 years from now if the research that you're doing right now materializes in such a way that it gives humans longer and healthier lives? Well, the, the last two words that you said are the most important, healthier lives. Because without health, there's no point in living longer. But the good news is that this science and this technology is only possible at extending lifespan by keeping diseases away. And the good news is, if you don't have a disease, you don't die. That's the side effect. Now, what about society? Now, of course, we can't summarize everything that's in the book because we go into a lot of detail from the morals to what it means for your family, for the economy, for politics. But some of the highlights are that there are two possible worlds. If we don't do anything, what does the world look like? And that actually is not pretty. We're going to be overcrowded with the older people who are sick in nursing homes, very expensive. We'll continue to spend more and more of our GDP up from 17% that it is now. That's a world that I'm trying to avoid. A different world would be where 70, 80, 90-year-olds can still be productive members of society rather than being unproductive, to say the least. And that's better for everybody. And the money that can be saved globally is in the trillions of dollars that can be put towards saving uh, species and trying to figure out what to do to combat global warming. And we make a really great case, I think, in the book that the treating aging can solve way more than the, the current problems that you think that we're addressing. And it may be the best solution to the world's problems that we currently have. You know, one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that if people do indeed live longer, if they stand the prospect of having to look their great-great-grandchildren into the eye, maybe, and, and I do realize this is a pretty big maybe, but maybe they'll make better decisions about the world that they're leaving for their great-great-grandchildren. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not a maybe at all. I had uh, dinner with a, a number of wealthy uh, investors last night, actually, and one of the, the guests at dinner 
uh, was an author, and he has written a book about global warming and what the future looks like. And there was a comment that was made by one of the people at dinner, which was, well, that's not our problem. We're not going to live long enough unless David makes us live that long. I really think that if we do think we're going to live long enough for these problems to eventuate, people will take better care of the world. You know, a lot of scientists are really reticent to talk to the world. Um, and over the past few years, I've gotten a pretty good understanding of why. Uh, I, I've watched you kind of take the blows that come from social media and sometimes come from journalists and sometimes come from other scientists. It's, it's really not easy being a scientist in the public eye. Well, it, it's not. And, and scientists are raised to be like monks where you shouldn't really go out into the public and engage. It's just not done. It's better to let uh, other communicators do that. But what I'm finding is that, first of all, the public wants direct contact with scientists rather than having it filtered through, uh, through newspapers and such, where I can vouch that often a message gets twisted. Uh, and so I'm excited about being in a position where I can educate people, bring them up to speed, and instead of waiting 10 years for them to learn about it, we can actually almost in real time allow the public to see these changes that are happening so quickly so that we all as a society and politicians and policymakers and even the FDA can get ready for what's definitely coming down the line in terms of healthcare, genetics, um, and these other big ethical issues. What was the process of writing this book like for you as a scientist? Because this was your first time writing in this way. You're, you're, you're a good writer, like I can vouch for this, and a good scientific writer, but this was your first kind of foray to writing, you know, this, this book-long project for a general audience. What was that like? Well, luckily I found a co-author who I, I regard as a genius. <laughs> um, this guy uh, who I'm speaking to, he's able to take a whole lot of stuff thrown up on a whiteboard from history to philosophy to science, uh, ethics, and weave it into a cohesive, really entertaining, page-turning story. And that I couldn't, I don't have the skill, I'm, I'm not equipped to do that, but I think together with that skill and your storytelling and my science and my ability to communicate that to you, it produced a book that I think has never been done before in science writing. You know, that's really nice of you to say, but I got to say, man, like I was lost about 96.2% of the time. Uh, well, we got to a point where by using analogies, such as DVDs being our genome and the scratches on the DVD being the aging process, the reader isn't confused. I'm, the feedback we're now getting as people read it, they're saying, finally, I understand what's going on. Thank you for explaining this to me. How how great is that? How I mean, it's, it, we're just a couple of days into this now, but how great is it to start to get that feedback? Uh, it, it's been a tidal wave. I've I've been watching it on social media. People are so excited to get your book. Well, it, it feels great because it, I mean, for a start, I don't think either of us wanted it to be uh, a, a failure, but it's it's the opposite. It's it's the cul culmination of for me twenty five years of work. Um, and a decade of thinking about how I'm going to tell the world about this uh, in a book. And it's finally coming true. Uh, and it, the book turned out way better than I imagined it could have. And I, I want to thank you for that, Matt. 
Oh, thank you too. I, I really appreciate being able to be a part of that project. And David, thank you so much for this chat. It's been it's been lovely. Hey, right back at you, man. Have a great day. You too. Matthew LeBlanc and David Sinclair talking about their new book, Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, which is now available in bookstores nationwide. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud, and I'm Melissa Roberts. Thanks for listening, and please go have some big ideas.